New York City is known for a lot of things. It's skyscrapers, it's frenetic energy, and let's not forget its accent. It's not New York, it's New York. It's not coffee, it's coffee. And for some people, it's not 33rd and 3rd, it's toity toit and toit. That's a more classic pronunciation that you're probably less likely to hear on the streets today. In fact, some say New York's accent is disappearing as the city becomes more gentrified. Good morning, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Love it or hate it, today's show is all about the way New Yorkers talk. Glad you're with us. Our first guest became enamored of accents when he was just a kid. So much so, he devoted his professional life to the study of language. George Jochnowitz is a retired professor of linguistics at the College of Staten Island. First of all, what inspired you to study linguistics? Well, uh, I didn't know there was such a word, but when I was six, my parents uh, bought a farm in upstate New York. And so anyway, I went up and I met all the farm kids and I learned right away that they didn't speak the same way the kids in Brooklyn spoke. What did you notice? Well, the big thing was the R, and so that's mostly what I noticed. But there was also the fact that if you are a New Yorker, you make a distinction between can and can. Yes, I can, and a tin can. And the word had, uh, I had a good time, doesn't rhyme with bad, as in I had a bad time. <laughs> and so uh, that was that was another thing that I noticed right away. So that interested you as a kid, huh? It really did, and I didn't know you could study such a subject, but I just thought it was interesting. And then I also knew that uh, people came from all kinds of different backgrounds and that sometimes it showed in their English, sometimes it didn't. Even people who came from places where the same language was spoken didn't always speak it the same way. And so people from different parts of Italy had different kinds of pronunciation, and East European Jews had different kinds of Yiddish. And I became aware of this, especially the different kinds of Yiddish. You rode the D train here today, right. right? I'm sure you heard the New York accent along your ride. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, as long as I was in Manhattan, I did. And uh, there was one man who was talking to a friend and then got off the train and said, take care. And I thought that was very wonderful. Well, I noticed you just said talking. I said talking. I'm trying I'm trying to sound like a New Yorker while I'm talking to you. You're trying to sound so I'm, does that I'm mean? consciously I'm I'm I, I also notice that I've been inconsistent, but I am consciously trying to use my old New York accent, which I don't use too much nowadays because the people I meet tend not to use it and it sounds like something that would call too much attention to itself. But uh, if, you're, if you're talking about New York dialect on the radio, that's what you should speak. First of all, what neighborhood did you grow up in here in New York City? Uh, until I was 14, uh, I lived in the Borough Park section of Brooklyn, which now sounds very different. It has become Orthodox Jewish, and uh, it's a different kind of community. But that's where I grew up. And then when I was 14, I moved to Manhattan, Greenwich Village, and when did you lose it exactly? When did it become noticeable to you that you were losing that accent? Well, I consciously was switching uh, when I was six, 
but I noticed that I was really losing it to an extent in college. But then very significantly, when I was teaching, my first job was in Philadelphia. And when I was teaching, I just felt I should not teach in an accent that calls attention to itself. Why do you think it is that the New York accent calls so much attention to itself? It's really very curious because here is this city everybody wants to live in. Everybody knows it's where where things are happening. And at the same time, maybe because it's very much a city of immigrants or I, I'm, I really don't know why a, a city like New York should have an accent that's stigmatized. And I don't know if it was always that way, but it is really curious. But of course, the London native accent, the Cockney accent, is very stigmatized, and it's only found in certain sections of London. And there's the whole play about it, the Pygmalion and then My My Fair Lady, which were based on speaking a Cockney accent and feeling you had to lose it. Is it your experience that people associate the New York accent with a lack of education? Um, I think maybe with a lack of being fully American, uh, which isn't the same as a lack of education. Mm -hmm. They can overlap, mm -hmm. but it's not quite the same thing. But uh, there were very old-fashioned New York accents that weren't stigmatized, I don't think, if you listen to the pronunciations of Eleanor Roosevelt or Franklin Roosevelt. It's not quite what we think of uh, as a New York accent, but they were certainly are-dropping, very much so. But it sounded just a little bit more British. And then there was a very old accent, which is really gone. The last I heard it was a uh, survivor of the um, the boat that caught fire in the East River. The, the Slocum? Slocum, General Slocum. She was a tiny, well, she was old enough to remember and old enough to talk, and she survived and came home to her parents who, I guess, didn't have a radio and said, what are you doing coming home all alone? And she was speaking with this really old-fashioned langu uh, language, and she said, wake and uh, ale. And O-I-L and E-A-R-L were the same vowel, ale, uh, which has, to an extent, survived in those people who say turlet, but that's not common anymore. I haven't anymore. heard that in a long you while. You really don't hear that anymore. That that's that's gone. But I think it comes from the days when people said turlet. My grandfather and, said that. Wow, does that bring back memories? Uh huh. And then people said wike. That lasted a little longer, and I think that's because. If you're learning English and you don't know how to say an American R, it's easier to learn how to say wike. We were wiking, but uh, people don't say that either. I think it's just one of those things that's history. I'm a native Bronxite, and I worked very hard to lose that Bronx accent to work in broadcasting. I was told you need to sound like you're from anywhere in the USA. So I used to say things like Mira mm -hmm. and Office. Mm-hmm. And I had to retrain my brain to say those words differently. Is that what it's all about, just retraining your brain to reshape the words? You can retrain it, or sometimes your brain retrains itself. I think it has something to do with age, because 
Sometimes you see a family that has moved from one place to a different place, and maybe there are a couple of siblings, and sometimes the older siblings speak the way they spoke in the original place, and the younger siblings pick up the accent of the new place, and I've, I've seen that in certain families. There are many new immigrants still coming to New York today. That being said, would you expect that the dialect will change even more as the years go on? Well, I've been wondering about that. I know a great many Chinese people, and I know uh, American-born Chinese, uh, ABCs, American-born Chinese, as, as they are called within the community, and they seem to sound just like any other New York kids. And the counterexample, uh, I guess, is right here in the Bronx, where Spanish has remained very, very much alive. And so people not only learn Spanish as babies, but they keep it up, and they remain bilingual and perhaps speak English with a foreign accent, even, even if they're born in the United States. Should we take offense when the New York accent is parodied, or should we celebrate that? I think we deserve respect. And we should be unhappy that it isn't respected. But at the same time, parody can be viewed as a kind of respect, something special. So maybe we should celebrate it. So, And it puts uh, us on the map, doesn't it? It certainly does. <laughs> Absolutely. So did you grow up as George or did you grow up as George? George. Yeah, me too. My family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, my family said George. Yeah, I think I have family members who still call me George Yeah, here in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. George, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, George. <laughs> George Jochnowitz is a retired professor of linguistics at the College of Staten Island. From New Yorker's lips to the big screen, a Bronx-born filmmaker is producing a documentary that explores the New York accent. It's called If These Knishes Could Talk. Heather Quinlan, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. What inspired you to produce a documentary about the way New Yorkers talk? Well, I have always had a love of language and accents, and I have two very different sides of my family. One is very working-class, blue-collar, and the other is more artsy and actors. Both sides with very heavy accents, though. And I think probably this was just sort of a natural progression of, you know, my life and my influences. And literally one day the idea just came to me. I actually didn't detect an accent on you until you said the word class. Class. My vowels are very New York. <laughs> now, what kind of accent did your family have? Very Irish. Uh, the side with the heavy accent grew up uh, Irish South Bronx. So Pat Mark and uh, Dungarees and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I know it well. I'm a Bronx kid myself. Mm -hmm. Mira was Mira. big in my family. Yeah, Santa Claus, you're beautiful, the whole nine. You hit the streets of New York City for this documentary, and you asked people if they thought they had a New York accent. How varied were the responses? They were pretty similar, all the, what, you think I got an accent? It was it was generally like that. Or I would do kind of a test with them where I'd diagnose whether they had an accent or not. Because I think people had been told that they had an accent but didn't really believe it because they couldn't hear it in themselves. So we'd do kind of a little bit of wordplay like coffee, chocolate, mother, father. And I'd be like, yep, you have a New York accent. How do New Yorkers feel about their accents? 
it's a combination of, you know, like when I was doing that wordplay with them, they'd be like, oh, God, I do have one. But at the same time, I think it's, it is definitely a source of pride for people because of all the things that go with it, sort of the confidence and the brashness and the take charge and all the things that New York is. Did you meet any New Yorkers who despised their accent, who wished they didn't have it, who worked to get rid of it? Oh, yeah. Uh, one girl I met, uh, Tara Canastrasi, she does a lot of on-air stuff for Major League Baseball, and she is from the Bronx and does stuff with New York baseball, but even she got called on the carpet for her accent by New Yorkers. So I filmed her taking a dialect class to try and lose her accent and also try and gain roles other than just sort of New York, New York-type kind of acting roles, something a little bit different. In the film, you introduce us to a man by the name of Ben Lee, a Staten Island resident who talks about being Korean with an Italian accent. What struck you most about what he had to say? Well, just to see him and hear him at the same time is just so striking at first because you're picturing someone who looks like a Al Pacino or something, and then here you have a, a Korean guy. But it's not only the accent, but it's the physicality and the gestures and the things that separate even the Italian New Yorkers from maybe other New Yorkers. And he has all that. Um, So it shows that you can have an accent that your ethnicity doesn't matter. Your accent is usually based on your peer group and your friends and who you grow up with. So even though you might be born in Korea, if you grow up in Staten Island, you will sound like a Staten Islander. But I guess this does speak to the fact that there is a stereotyping of the accent. Oh, sure. Even amongst New Yorkers. And there is the idea that, you know, Asians will sound Asians, Italians will sound Italian, and, you know, Puerto Ricans will sound Puerto Rican. I even just interviewed a girl from Bangladesh uh, who grew up in the Bronx and sounds Puerto Rican. So it does it does cross ethnic lines all the time and I think speaks to the future of the accent, too. Yeah, let's talk about the future of the accent. There are people who fear that the New York accent will disappear as the city becomes more and more expensive and native New Yorkers move out. Where do you stand on that? I think that's true to a degree. I think the accent in Manhattan, at least, and what we've seen with people that we've talked to and, and filmed and you know our own observations is that it has left Manhattan to a large extent because Manhattan is so expensive and natives have been replaced by immigrants from outside the country and from within the country. But I think wealthy people are probably not going to live way out in in the outskirts of Queens. They're probably not going to live in Staten Island, Tottenville. Uh, probably not going to live in Sheepshead Bay, Brighton Beach. So I think uh, you are always going to have that accent uh, in, in some respect. How it'll sound 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, who knows? You talked with a man for the film who speaks American Sign Language, and he said that even in signing, there's a New York accent. How so? Well, obviously, it's not a spoken accent, but all the sort of traits that make up a spoken accent are there in sign language. Um, There's different slang in uh, the way that deaf New Yorkers sign. Um, The the speed at which they sign is much faster than, say, a, a, a Southern American person who's deaf. Um, and there's uh, a lot more cursing in, in, in New Yorkers than there is in, say, like Ohio, where he had been too. Do you have a goal in mind as to when you want to see this film finished? Well, we were just doing a 20-minute segment that was uh, screening in the Art of Brooklyn Festival in Brooklyn Heights, and then we're using that for fundraising to be able to finish the film, looking to finish the film next year. What are you hoping the takeaway will be for people who see the film? 
Well, I think the best documentaries are ones where you go in thinking one thing and you come out thinking another. And I think even for New Yorkers who feel like they know what the accent is, to be able to see it in someone like Ben Lee, who's Korean but sounds Italian, in someone who uh, signs with a New York accent, to be able to see different elements of that and also how the accent ties in with New York as New York changes and evolves. How is the accent going to change and evolve and how the two of them will survive in the coming decades. And how was the title born, if these knishes could talk? I've always had very uh, strong memories around my first uh, foods that I've eaten, like managot. The first time I had managot, oh my God. Uh, but Thanks for calling it managot. Manicotti. <laughs> Manicotti. But a knish, I remember my father gave me my first knish at the Staten Island Zoo when I was about five years old. And uh, I just was like, I was like, wow, something this wonderful exists. I can't believe it. And it was a Jewish food, uh, and it was given to me by my father, who was Irish, in a very Italian borough. And so it just seemed to sort of encapsulate all that the New York accent and New York is. And I don't know. Again, like the like the subject of the film, it literally just came to me. These conditions could talk. I Sort of a, a spoof on, I guess, that movie, If These Walls Could Talk. Heather Quinlan, the film is If These Conditions Could Talk. Can't wait to see it. Thank you so much. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. Besides the distinct accent, there are certain words and phrases that help to define New Yorkese. A number of those words and phrases are included in a new book called Wicked Good Words, From Johnny Cakes to Jug Handles, A Roundup of America's Regionalisms. Mim Harrison is the author. Mim, good morning. Good morning. This book is a collection of words and phrases particular to different parts of the United States, including New York. What inspired you to put this collection together? I think it was my ears because I I describe myself as an eavesdropper on English and just delighting in hearing these unusual expressions in other parts of the country. You don't you know you don't have to go far to hear quote another language or at least words and expressions that you're not familiar with. Okay, Mim, let's dive into some of the wicked good words and phrases in your book that are specific to New York, like bridge and tunnel crowd. What's the meaning of that? That phrase and how did it originate? Well, that phrase, I would say it's used with a little bit of derogation, and probably the one who said it best or most famously was Kate Hudson in the movie Raising Helen, when she talked about, she kind of shuddered at the idea that she might be among the, quote, bridge and tunnel crowd, and it means that you're not living in Manhattan, but you're living in Brooklyn or Queens or Long Island or Jersey or someplace where it takes a bridge or a tunnel to get into Manhattan. And it actually was a, an expression that it first appeared in the New York Times, which I guess is appropriate, and that was in the late 70s. Then another author, Dan Jenkins, used it in his book called Life Its Own Self. And then I think it really kind of... Uh, gained a little traction nationally with uh, the movie uh, Raising Helen and Kate Hudson saying that. Bubkiss, as in I got bubkiss. <laughs> what does that mean? Bubkiss means that you got nothing. And uh, bubkiss is actually a Slavic word that means beans. 
And at first you think, well, how does that connect? And yet think of some of our other expressions like it didn't amount to a hill of beans. So we, we, we do kind of borrow from beans on, for a number of our expressions. And it is a Yiddish expression. Even as a native New Yorker, this one was new to me. I'm talking about Croton Cocktail. What I tried to do was to include words that most of us living in the area would know and, and recognize and say, oh, yeah, I say that. But also to include a few that probably many of us don't know anymore but were at one time uh, popular. And Croton Cocktail, I thought, was marvelous because it is New York City tap water because, of course, you get your drinking water from the Croton Aqueduct. So I'm waiting for someone to go into a bar in New York and order a Croton cocktail and see what they get. I may just do that next time. (laughs) I'm on a bar here in New York City. Here's another one I was unfamiliar with, Edom and Beatum. Well, you're unfamiliar with that probably because you're not part of the era of the the automats. There were some old-time kind of cafeteria-style restaurants in New York, and what you would do would be you would pick up your plate of food, and then you would tally up your bill yourself, and then you would leave your money for it. And so eat them and beat them in a way was sort of the uh, the skeptical way of saying that people would go in and uh, get the food and kind of beat the system and not pay for it, although I don't think that was always the case. If you don't drive, you might not be familiar with this one. So what does it mean to hang a louis? Hang a louis is to make a left turn. You'll hear that, I think, quite frequently in New York City. Probably the the caddies would know hang a louis. If you go to other parts of the country, if you go to Chicago, you might hear hang a reggie, and that means turn right. And where does Louis come from? Louis, it's one of those where there are a number of theories as to who was Louis. And one was simply that it rhymed with Yui. The other was that it might be Louis Lefkowitz, who was a former attorney general for New York State. And there's a third uh, theory that it might have been the, the boxer, Joe Lewis. I always said Joe Lewis, but he had a legendary left hook. So it's one of those where you can probably pick uh, which, whichever story you like best. I didn't realize that the expression nosh was particular to our region, as in, what are you noshing on? Yeah. But I guess you're less likely to hear people in other parts of the country use that expression? That has, again, a Yiddish it would be a Yiddish term. And so you hear it a lot of, in New York City. Uh, interestingly enough, you do hear it a lot in South Florida, where I live, because we do have uh, a lot of people from the metropolitan area living down here. So you get, you get a nice uh, kind of cross, uh, crosshatch of different regionalisms, including many from the New York area. Yeah, you can feel quite at home in South Florida, can you, if you're <laughs> from New right. York? That's right. In fact, many people down here wait online, which, of course, New Yorkers wait online. Yes, I do. I was waiting online just this morning at the coffee shop. (laughs) And I think only New Yorkers wait online. Of course, the rest of us wait in line. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that to me is like a classic giveaway of a New Yorker. You think that would change, especially that we all spend so much time online, online. quite literally on the Internet. <laughs> right, right. But that's one of the nice things about many regionalisms. There's a certain stubbornness to them, and people don't want to give up their identity that easily. So I'm, I'm glad that it sticks.
Well, we're talking about a lot of the wicked good words and phrases that come out of the New York area, but your book spans all of America, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I tried to arrange it uh, the way that if you were taking a road trip across America, you would encounter these different expressions. So even though people in New York City talk very differently from people in western New York, geographically it's still the mid-Atlantic part of the country. And again, if you were taking a road trip, you might start in, in New York City and go through western New York. So I think it's a good way to show people also the diversity of regionalisms within a fairly concentrated area of the country. And, and you find that in, in all of these areas of the country. Well, I think I'm going to use your book to show off. I'm going to go out west, and I'm going to tell someone to chew it finer. Yes, that's right. And if you tell them that, then they might say it again a little bit more slowly and a little bit more clearly. But isn't that a wonderfully colorful way to say it? And another one along those lines that that I really liked was, we're hitched but not churched, which would mean, well, we're living together, but we're not married but a very economical and uh, kind of a a really charming way to say it. And that, that you probably would hear in Texas. The book is Wicked Good Words. Mim Harrison, thank you so much. Thank you very much. New Yorkese is by far not the only language spoken on the streets of New York City. Dozens of accents and languages can be heard here. In the upper Manhattan neighborhood of Inwood, a lot of new immigrants only speak Spanish. With that in mind, a local artist is holding English classes and of all places, a laundromat. Amid the gurgling of washers and hum of dryers at the Magic Touch laundromat in northern Manhattan, Hector Canonge is teaching English. His vocabulary lesson starts off with words fitting for the setting. Shirt. Shirt. Canonge is standing in front of a wall of stainless steel industrial dryers at the head of a bright yellow folding table. His eight students are lined up along the table, four on each side, six women and two men from the Dominican Republic and Mexico. Canonge says he wanted to offer immigrants in the neighborhood, especially those without documentation, a relaxed setting to learn English. So many recent immigrants can go to a school, public school, and say, you know, I want to learn English because the first thing they're going to ask you is, well, do you have an ID, you know, an ID, or even the library? So that, that also I'm trying to, to kind of say, you don't need all of that. Just come, your willingness, this is a friendly environment, to your laundry, and let's, let's try it, let's give it a shot. This part of Manhattan has a large population of Spanish-speaking immigrants, mostly from the Dominican Republic, but also from Mexico, Ecuador, and Central America. Canonge lives in the neighborhood. He says the idea for the English classes came from observations he made while doing his own laundry. I saw many people struggling with the machines, you know, reading like the instructions, when do I put the soap, what's, what's wash and what's bleach or what's rinse. During the day there's the Korean owner who tends the place, so even that is, you know, they can't talk to him. They can't say, I need, I need change, you know, give me five dollars in change. And also he can't speak Spanish, so <laughs> that's the thing. Underwear. But when you live in a neighborhood where so many people do speak Spanish, it's easy to put off learning English. That's what Myra Cairo, who hails from the Dominican Republic, says happened to her. She's been living in the U.S. for 26 years and became a citizen about six months ago. Everybody speaks Spanish in the neighborhood. It's very difficult to speak English, and a lot of people speak Spanish. 
Kiro says she signed up to learn English at the laundromat because she couldn't beat the convenience, and she knows it's important for her job as a home health aide. Muy bien, my dress. Todo el mundo. My dress. My dress. To advance in America is why Dominican-born Milagro Perez says she registered for the class. With the help of her 11-year-old nephew, Roberto, Perez told me she has no qualms about learning English amidst washing and folding. It doesn't have to be weird because wherever, we have, wherever we're going to be, we're still going to learn. So, hemos aprendido red... Hemos aprendido green y ahora estamos aprendiendo yellow, yellow, ¿Ah? yellow. Y voy a empezar por acá. Yellow. 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 Not yellow, porque si dices yellow es gelatina. Canonge is not an ESL teacher by trade. He's an artist. Canonge says he likes exploring the idea of public spaces as classrooms. This project is titled the Inwood Laundromat Language Institute. It's sponsored by the nonprofit Laundromat Project, an organization that sets up artists' residences and laundries. Program manager Petrushka Bazin says it's nice when art and social justice collide. With Hector's project, this is a perfect example of this is an art project for him, but the repercussions of it are manifold, and people are going to be able to walk away from this art and have not only experienced the work because they are part of it, but also be able to take away these very real um, takeaways where they can apply them to their daily life. Amarillo, yellow. Okay, it's not J Lo, like J Lo, <laughs> right? It's yellow. If you're wondering what credentials Canonge has to teach English, he says his mom did it for a living, and he tapped her to help develop his lesson plan. She said, I wash my blue pants. Everyone? I wash my blue pants. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Remember, you can find past editions of Cityscape at wfuv.org cityscape. And don't be a stranger. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed as WFUV's Cityscape. My thanks to our newly named senior producer, Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. <laughs>